Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I'm thrilled to be in dialogue with Seth Sanders. He is a professor in the Religious Studies Department and the Jewish Studies Program at the University of California, Davis. We will be discussing his recently published book, From Adapa to Enoch, Scribal Culture and Religious Vision in Judea and Babylon, published in Tübingen, Germany, by Moore Seebeck Publishers, 2017. Seth, thank you for being with me today, and thank you for everything that you have clearly sacrificed through the labor that has gone into this book. Well, thank you so much, Ari. I'm, I'm delighted to be here talking with you, and uh you know, uh, um, yeah, to, to be on the podcast. And I, I also appreciate you um, <laughs> pointing out that any, any scholarly work, and, you know, lots of us have done this, um, you know, does take the sacrifice of hundreds or thousands of hours of just, you know, sitting in a chair, pouring over stuff. Um, and in, in this case, you know, stuff from Aramaic from Babylonian, Sumerian, and Hebrew that was really uh, just just fascinating to me to, to to bring together. Can you kindly tell us about yourself? What formative events in your life inspired your scholarly journey and your interest in the subject matter presented in this book? Yeah, this is this is a question I've been thinking about it because in some ways it's it's a surprising uh convoluted road i i was really mostly interested in like drawing and uh, like extreme outre avant-garde music uh and also really inspired by my rabbi arnold jacob wolf um, in uh, in in Chicago, who is a very challenging kind of prophetic guy, um, and I actually have a piece about precisely this about bringing together these things of um, music and kind of kind of um, being at or or passing through the boundaries between Jewish tradition and uh, avant garde art and musical performance and. Uh, uh, and how I got interested in what what's really very also very dry, boring, technical stuff, and, and trying trying somehow to see the music in that. Um, yeah, so so I, I grew up around the U of Chicago. Um, uh, again, was um, got this sense of Judaism as a very actually very challenging and even even um, you know having kind of mystical or boundary pushing elements. Um, then kind of wasn't, didn't think about it much in college, but then, uh, where, where I was, uh, much, initially much more excited about 
just just playing um, kind of kind of some wild sounding music on uh, on the, the radio station at WHRB at, at, at Harvard, but I fell under the influence of two uh, really spellbinding, wonderful scholars, uh, Gregory Nagy and classics, who was really interested in the relationship between um, uh, classical Greek texts and, and performance and poetry, uh, and um, Frank Moore Cross, who was the this formidable figure in, in uh, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, in uh, inscriptions, paleography and epigraphy, but also in uh, the sort of archaic and epic and poetic elements of the Hebrew Bible. So I, I really looked up to those folks. Uh, and then in, uh, and, and they kind of, kind of inspired me, but I had these very different things percolating together, I guess, between the, um, you know, the, the sorts of challenging or even, you know, trance-like elements of, of the music and Jewish tradition and philology, the, the, the need, the desire to get to a, a, a rigorous historical view uh, of what it was like for ancient people not, and not to drag around assumptions or prejudices into uh, trying to understand them. Went to graduate school at a place that felt very formidable to me, uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, which where there was a, a, the, actually the first, first Near Eastern Studies program in America, uh, founded by the uh, seriologist Paul Haupt, came over from Leipzig and, um, and they continued in that tradition of um, kind of integrating things from the most ancient parts of the ancient Near Eastern written tradition, Mesopotamia, Egypt with uh, the Levant biblical study. So I studied with um, Gerald Cooper, the Sumerologist, um, Ray Westbrook was a, a brilliant scholar of comparative ancient law. Um, and then my, um, my teachers in Hebrew and Aramaic, Delbert Hillers uh, and Kyle McCarter. Uh, and yeah, I feel like they're, they're the ones who made, to the extent I am a real philologist uh, and can really work with this material. They're the ones who made me into that. I then took a year at Hebrew University and I was incredibly lucky to meet uh, sort of, you know, what you could call the Gedolim Hador of that um, uh, generation, both the last last people of kind of the first great generation of Hebrew University Near East people, uh, the Chaim Tadmor and Shlomo Morag, but I, I sat at the feet of Jonas Greenfield, who was a great Aramaist, a very, very funny guy too, a Dead Sea Scrolls scholar. And it was Greenfield and Michael Stone, the great scholar of uh, Apocrypha and, and uh, early Jewish literature that really inspired me to see that Maybe I could make, maybe I could trace some real types of connections and interplays um, between Mesopotamian, um, Southern Levantine, Hebrew, and Aramaic, and even early Jewish uh, culture and religion. And um, yeah, so that that was the um, that was kind of the gestation of the project. And, and I um, yeah, I have a piece on an ancient Jew review coming out just today in the unexpected influences section about this relationship between um, Jewish music, mysticism, uh, avant-garde music, 
uh, and the, the ancient elements of religious experience or liturgical participation. So that, that goes into even more depth on this stuff. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? So, so what initially inspired me was this tantalizing statement. Um, it's in Gershom Sholem's Origins of the Kabbalah, where he talks about how certain images and um, symbolism that we first encounter in um, when when we when we we see the full blown detailed kabbalistic texts um the uh the bahir the zohar um fairly well into the middle ages it seems already fully developed but there don't seem to be clear traces of it and he he sort of says in a, a very hand wavy way that it must go back to i think he uses the term the ancient orient or something which is a you know in some ways vague and unhelpful term, but I was tantalized by this idea that that these elements of kind of like participation in heavenly liturgy, um, the myth of the journey to heaven, specifically the round trip journey to heaven, that is not, you know, because lots of cultures, you know, hope, hope to go to a, either a heaven or another paradise-like place when uh, the participants die, but the idea that you could go there, uh, have something important revealed to you and bring it back uh, to this world is something that you see in uh, early Jewish mystical literature, the Hechelot literature. Uh, in Kabbalah, there's, of course, some, a few a few furtive allusions in the Talmud, but also it turns out that this was the um, the foundational myth of the greatest hero of Mesopotamian scholarship, uh, the semi-human super sage Adapa. And so uh, the, the, in a way, the message of the book is in the title, From Adapa to Enoch. Uh, that is, this is the story of um, the types of sharing and transformation that happened between uh, Mesopotamia and, and Judea and the, the, the roots of early Jewish culture. Um, during the first millennium BCE. Uh, and the, I think the, the message is an approach to these things, not merely through borrowing or influence, that is not as Jay-Z Smith used to like to say, uh, who snitched what from whom. Uh, in other words, you know, is, is there a thing that um, looks like somebody copied or stole but rather um, a process uh, detailing in the fact, the very fact that we can detail a process of sharing of uh, mutual participation in uh, certain types of myths in certain types of um, like scribal persona ways of being things that things that ancient scholars thought they could be and do uh, and the most impactful thing that they thought they could do was create scripture. So that would be the take home. What are the primary themes in this book? Can you offer a summary for us? Yeah, so so I, I, I'd say there are, you know, you could sort of boil it down to three. Um, the first theme is that traditionally the story of um, the rise of these heavenly reveal, revealer figures 
uh, in Judaism, uh, such as earlier Moses, but but Enoch is the most prominent one in early Judaism, as although a controversial one, one one who was uh, rejected by some some aspect of Judaism. Um, it, it's usually been told as a story of borrowing uh, and, and copying. And uh, I wanted to argue for a new approach uh, based more on subjectivity and participation. Uh, and I argued that we have the data to uh, paint such a picture of what scribes and scholars participated in and how that built some aspect of their subjectivity of who they thought they were and hence what they thought they could do. Um, so methodologically, I guess that would be the second point would be moving from uh, an idea of borrowing to ideas of uh, historically specific moments of sharing and participation uh, that led to uh, great types of creativity, changes in subjectivity, uh, that these scholars were not just copyists, not just, uh, you know, schoolboys or, or uh, a, a, a educators, uh, but um, people who uh, were uh, participants in and creators of uh, religion of, of mystical visions as well as scholarly texts and then I guess the final point is the the conceptual framework that I think is most helpful um, for understanding who these people thought they were and what they thought they were doing is the notion that um, I, I take uh, originally from Foucault although um, there's a whole there's a whole book with this title uh, by an eminent philosopher whose name I'm blanking on now, but the, the Ian Hacking, yeah, and that is historical ontology. The idea is that um, ontology, that is the the thinking about the nature of reality, uh, the 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 fabric of events and being itself, how the how the universe is structured, um, ontology. In philosophy, it's usually that's that's often treated as a kind of a timeless thing. Like if we you you know come to a correct theory of ontology or a, advance your theory of ontology, that's just the way that's your understanding of the way things are, the way they've always been. Um, you know, I think you'd see people like Heidegger talking about it that way. What Foucault and Hacking, um, as well as uh, historians of science like Lorraine Daston, talk about instead is that um, people's visions of the fundamental mechanics of being in reality actually change over time uh, so you can treat ontology historically so that's kind of the big argument is then that it, and, and if you if you see a mesopotamian ontology or an ancient uh hebrew priestly ontology or a certain types of early jewish um scholarly or mystical ontology if you treat those as historical questions look at how they changed and what they might have in common um, then you can understand a lot more about what these people thought they were doing how they thought they could reveal the words of god um and when in particular when they um when they thought they could um somehow produce new words of god uh and that's that's really a remarkable 
thing that I think I think is still kind of on the edges at the boundaries of how people when people work on on um, let's say early Judaism, uh, I, it still is seems like kind of a mystery how people could do things like um, write new scripture or transform what the Bible says, uh, and so I, I think this this can help with that. Who is Enoch? For listeners who might be unfamiliar with biblical and extra biblical traditions, can you offer an introduction? Sure. Yeah. So Enoch is kind of a, a the great one of the probably the most tantalizing mystery man of Genesis. Um, he is uh, one of the antediluvian patriarchs. That is the the um, people in those um, kind of boring sections before the flood of X begat Y, who who had this many children and begat Z and died. Um, but Enoch is distinguished as being the only one of those patriarchs who, instead of saying he died, it just says um, he was no more for God took him. A and people have been tantalized by this and because there's another uh, really important um, mention, uh, which is it says he lived 365 years, which is a very interesting number, especially for a culture that... Um, seem to have a lunar year already, you know, as we still do in Judaism, that is a roughly 360 day year. Uh, why would he live the number of days of a solar year, 365? And it also says that he went about uh, the Hitpael of Halach with Ha Elohim, which uh, could be like, no, what walked with God, that is behaved in accordance with God, was, a, uh, was close with God. But it can also easily be translated as he went about with the angels. He traveled around with the heavenly beings. And um, some people, and so, so that's the fact, those are the facts about Genesis, Enoch and Genesis, the most, most relevant ones anyway. Um, we then find um, dating to uh, the early third century BC, um, because we have manuscripts from the end of the third century BC from the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, two books about Enoch and his adventures in Aramaic, what, what scholars call the Book of the Watchers and uh, the Book of the Luminaries. And the Book of the Watchers <coughs> is a story of how Enoch is present at, at the fall of the angels and pronounces God's judgment on them and then is taken up on a tour of the universe. Uh, and sees the structures of the heavens, sees the uh, cosmic plans where the righteous are stored up for the end of time, uh, how the evil are punished, how the fallen angels are punished. Um, and the book of the luminaries or the astronomical book uh, then details a journey of Enoch that he's taken on by the, the angel Uriel and showed the structure of the cosmos, the, the patterns by which um, the days and nights work and the years work, uh, where the winds come from. And what has intrigued scholars, even since even before they found this, these scrolls um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it is the correlation between the astronomical implications of Enoch's lifespan, 365 years, uh, with the huge amount of astronomical data in the uh, Book of the Luminaries or the Astronomical Book of Enoch. 
And it was noted already um, many decades ago by scholars, historians of science like Otto Neugebauer that um, there is Mesopotamian astronomy and Mesopotamian math implied in the Book of the Luminaries. Um, there's base 60 calculations, which was used in Sumerian math, but not uh, in ancient Hebrew math, which was like ours was base 10. Um, there are particular kinds of proportions and formulae that you really only find in Mesopotamia uh, that branches out later to the rest of the world. But my colleague Jonathan Ben Dove at uh, Tel Aviv wrote a, a wonderful book called the, the Head of All Years that details exactly what the Babylonian basis of Enoch's astronomy seemed to be. So he's really a fascinating figure for these kinds of cultural connections and interchanges between um, Mesopotamia and the Levant, and then also um, becomes a very important figure for early Jewish mysticism. So he's kind of somewhere between science and, and uh, mysticism, which and Kabbalah even, which makes him a really uh, neat figure. Who is Adapa? Can you introduce us to him? Yes. So Adapa, it was was uh, just as Enoch was kind of a, uh, a revealer figure and role model for um, not only some of the the Qumran sectarians who produced the Dead Dead Sea Scrolls and collected the the library we find there, but also he was also kind of a role model, an aspirational figure for. Um, early Jewish mystics. Similarly, Adapa was kind of the patron saint of Mesopotamian scribal culture. Uh, when uh, the uh, Neo-Assyrian King Asurbanipal brags about his scholarly knowledge, he says, I have mastered uh, all of scholarship, the, uh, the art of Adapa. And, and, and in Mesopotamian uh, scholarship, knowing scholarship knowing knowing texts and scribal culture was not merely a matter of the head it was a matter of religious power uh adapa was also the exorcist par excellence uh the master of ritual incantations and spells and so so scribes would identify with him sometimes literally uh in hellenistic uruk once you graduated to be a kind of a senior scholar, a senior scribe, you got your own uh, personal stamp seal with a picture uh, of Adapa or one of his uh, cosmic colleagues, these semi-human fishmen, uh, which in Mesopotamia are called Apkalu. Uh, and, and so you got an Apkalu seal. It's, it's a little guy with a, with a body of a fish and a little bearded face sticking out of the fish mouth and arms and legs. Um, and these guys are also depicted as exorcists uh, in Mesopotamian art and rituals, standing around the sick person to cure them. And the founding myth of Adapa, uh, with which we already find in Sumerian, it's a text they just discovered a couple of decades ago, um, is that he was the, um, the dedicated servant of uh, Enki. That's his Sumerian name, Ea is his Babylonian name. Um, uh, and Enki is the god of magic and secret knowledge. He's the uh, creator of a lot of the most important rituals and incantations in Mesopotamia. Um, and so the story goes that one day Adapa is out fishing uh, because he's the priest of Enki and he's, he's 
at harvesting some fish for the temple um, when he gets into a fight with another cosmic force, the south wind. And it's not really clear why the south wind attacks him uh, when he's on his boat. It may be rivalry because, and this is something nobody had noticed, but I, speaking of sacrificing time, I was rooting around reading about the south wind and I found out that the south wind is also um, specially connected with uh, the favorite of the same god as Adapa, Enki. So there may be rivalry between who's the, uh, who is the darling of, of Enki. Uh, but anyway, the south wind attacks him uh, and capsizes his boat. Uh, and some scholars think he may have even drowned and come back to life. I'm not sure about that, but he was definitely pretty upset. And so he uses his um, ritual power and it says that his word is like the word of Enki, which means basically that his word is almost like the word of God. It's, it's a little bit like those rabbis who are uh, mythically thought to be able to, um, by using, uh, using God's language, uh, bring a calf to life, create, create new life, or bring a golem to life and animate it and deanimate it. Uh, but anyway, Adapa pronounces a spell uh, to break the wings of the south wind the wind's wings shatter, uh, but this results in a disaster because the south wind is necessary for life in Mesopotamia, crucial for um, uh, agriculture and productivity. So people are starving and there's chaos. And the gods have heard this. And so they they call Adapa onto the carpet. Uh, and in, in this case, the carpet is heaven. They, they summon him to heaven for, uh, and Adapa isn't sure why, but he's he's worried because when the, the head gods call you to heaven because of something you've done, uh, you might be in terrible trouble. And here his patron god, Enki, seems to trick him. Enki says, oh, okay, now you better watch out. They're going to give you um, uh, a new robe, new garment, and anoint you with oil, which will be great. I'll give you a new, kind of a new lease on life, but they're going to try to poison you. They're going to give you uh, food of death and water of death. So you can take you can take the new garment and the anointment, but don't eat and don't drink. And Adapa says, okay, thank you for, thank you for rescuing me, Enki. Um, and so he takes the road to heaven. He knows the secret password uh, of these two, two uh, gods who are supposedly dead. Um, uh, Dumuzi and Ningish Zito, but are actually in heaven. And um, he gives him the secret password and he's called up and honor the God of heaven says, you know, why did you do this Adapa here? First, first, before we talk, uh, here's a garment, oil, food and drink. And Adapa takes the garment and oil, refuses the food and drink. And then the gods look at him and uh, Anu laughs. And he said, you foolish mortal, if you had accepted our heavenly food and heavenly drink, you would have had eternal life like the gods, but instead um, you're going to have to go back to earth. So why did Enki give this power, uh, this, this cosmic power of language to, to such a, a stupid human being? And then the weird thing is that in, in all of the versions where, where we have the ending preserved, there's then an incantation that seems to draw on the power of Adapa. So he's kind of a, um, in some versions, a tragic figure. And then in other, in other versions, maybe a heavenly figure. There's, um, there are other Mesopotamian views that he actually remained enthroned in heaven, 
maybe did achieve divinity or immortality. But regardless of whether it's tragic or um, some kind of cosmic enthronement, he's definitely a hero who Mesopotamian sages and exorcists called on uh, to, to give them power to, to uh, help or change things in, in this world. What insights does your study offer to specialists in literary theory? In particular, what is meant by the term contextualization? Can you explain this concept? Yeah, so um, so one of the ways that I that my thinking changed over the course of uh, cre creating the book originally is I kind of sat at the feet of uh, probably the greatest um, linguistic anthropologist uh, of uh, the last generation, Michael Silverstein at the University of Chicago, as well as I think one of his most uh, brilliant students, Robin Shopes. And together, I, I think I learned from them that there's a whole other way you can approach texts and their impact and how they how they connect to life uh, beyond um, a lot of conventional literary theory, which is tends to be based on books, on um, reading, um, you know, reading novels. Um, uh, and it's it's a very much like a text first approach that you you assume printed packaged texts that you might read you might read for edification or for inspiration or um, you know be changed by them but um, the the linguistic anthropology approach that was uh, that really opened up uh, aspects of the Bible Mesopotamia early early Jewish literature to me. Uh, that approach is centered not on books, but on people. So the idea is that you don't start your view of texts from books or printed matter. You start from discourse, that is, and that's just a fancy name for all of our use of language in, in life. Uh, the flow of conversation, you know, from jokes, prayers, insults, um, uh, just regular everyday talk to uh to written books and speeches all, all forms of kind of the flow of language the all the all the use of language in life and then the process by which people take from this whole flow of ideas phrases uh you know um cliches etc and and shape those into well-defined things whether those are songs uh uh, jokes, stories, or essays and books. Um, in, in linguistic anthropology, they tend to call that intextualization. In other words, you're you're turning free-floating discourse into a bounded, defined text. Um, so, you know, um, for I mean, as an example, our our talk here is kind of being intextualized and bounded by uh, the fact that it's being recorded and then turned into kind of an an artifact or an object. You know, it's podcast number whatever it is 223 it'll last you know whatever 61 minutes um but the conversation itself you know started before the podcast and could go on and then if we talk about this stuff you know in other contexts uh it could it could be a much more free-flowing thing so intextualization is when you uh uh put boundaries and 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 on on a chunk of discourse and define it into a text and then there's the opposite process of contextualization when you bring it back into life into into discourse and i think the idea seeing language as you know fundamentally um 
uh, a pragmatic thing, something people do, was really key in helping me um, see how uh, how these rituals, these myths, these written texts would have connected to ancient life, uh, to ancient experience. Um, and I'll add one thing is that the, the last thing is that an, an example of how difficult this stuff can be from if you just use a strict literary theory point of view um, is uh, the term uh, performative. So that was something that was developed by the um, uh, the philosopher J.L. Austin and was probably most famously deployed by the theorist uh, Judith Butler to talk about how um, gender is uh, performative. That is, it's something that people um, enact and either accept or argue over or don't. And you can, I mean, ironically, the, the people who, who are often most upset about things like um, transgender identity uh, themselves are, are showing uh, how how much of a performance it is because uh, it becomes much more salient, much more of a hot topic if you yell about it uh, and argue over it. And it, it becomes more easily easy to accept if you're just like, oh, you know, I'm a guy, um, I'm, I'm a girl, I'm non-binary, what, whatever. Um, but the problem with it is that without a really robust theory of how language use connects to life, um, the notion of performative can become kind of magical and people will will say, oh, it um, my you know being being Jewish is performative, uh, you know, or being um, being this is per performative, being that is performative, and in modern colloquial discourse, in modern um, most regular modern speech, including most uses as you see on the internet, it now means fake as a result. It, so it it goes from a social reality that you enact and is socially accepted to uh, merely putting on a show just for show. And um, I, I think this sort of uh, overemphasis on the, um, and it's a misunderstanding of Butler, certainly, but also a, a misunderstanding of Austin, the, the idea that it just kind of magically happens that you say, now I'm Jewish, now I'm this now and that, which is not, you know, certainly not what real people do typically, but but without, I think that if you use a linguistic anthropology approach to pragmatics and how language interfaces with life, you can get a much more um, robust and three-dimensional view uh, of how of the magic of words or of how how identity and belonging can happen. What does your research teach us about scribal practices in antiquity? In particular, what light does your book shed on the Dead Sea Scrolls and the history and literature of the Qumran community? Well, the, I think the main thing, um, the most interesting thing there for me was uh, the notion that the, the, the Qumran sectarians thought that they could uh, somehow reproduce divine language. There's a there's a hymn to language to the 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 divine shaping power of language uh, in the Hodayot, and this was <clears throat> the Hodayot is a, a, a this modern scholarly term for one of the most basic uh, liturgies that they seem to have used uh, very regularly, Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, and 
in it, they, uh, they seem to talk no, not only about using divine language, but probably even about being enthroned in heaven. Uh, there's another set uh, that was created a lot of excitement when it first came out um, and, and now isn't discussed nearly as much, but I think should be. The Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifice, which seems to be the description of the liturgies that the angels perform uh, in heaven, in, in, on the heavenly Shabbat. Uh, and these, uh, I, I think that, that, that they show us, if you, if you read it in, in sort of a full three-dimensional uh, perspective with all of the other kinds of texts they were using and um, ways of life and rituals they seem to be performing at Qumran, <clears throat> you get a much better sense of how um, these people could uh, take on a kind of a divine persona and how they could uh, view themselves as participating uh, in the type of creative language used by God himself. Can you tell us about the ancient scholar Berossus's book, Babyloniaca? Yeah. What yeah, can you tell us about him and his book, Babyloniaca? Yes, uh, this is a really interesting artifact. This was produced in the um, early third century BCE, and it was part of a wave of um, ancient Near Eastern scholars producing uh, an account of their culture for a Hellenistic audience. Uh, in this case, Barassus was a Babylonian priest, uh, and he did this probably under the patronage of Antiochus I Soter, and he is writing in Greek, but summarizing his view of Babylonian culture and knowledge, hopefully so that this Hellenistic audience and his, his Hellenistic rulers can recognize it, uh, respect it, and appreciate it. At, at a, and it, this is at roughly the same time as the Egyptian priest Manetho is doing the same for Egyptian culture that the, uh, Phoenician priest Philo of Byblos is probably, although the evidence for Philo is a little, little, little harder to piece together, but Philo is probably doing this for Phoenician culture as well. So these people are, in a way, forming an idea of culture for the first time that is a, a package of all of the myths, customs, history, forms of knowledge that make uh, a people uh, what they are. And it's key, I think, that it's for a foreign audience. In other words, it may be that you only start to worry about culture and start to package culture uh, in a larger kind of cosmopolitan context when you're very aware of difference and maybe also in a an imperial or a colonial context where you're aware that you're just one of many and you want to make the case for your culture and your belonging. And uh, Barassus also tells an interesting story about Adapa, who he calls Oanes, uh, which must, which comes from one of Adapa's names, Uan. Uh, sometimes Adapa's name is written Uan Adapa. And he talks about him as a fish man who came up out of the sea at the beginning of human history. And he taught humans all the important features of civilization. He, uh, he civilized them basically. Uh, taught them all, all the all that really is needed, uh, 
to know to uh, to be uh, to be human to have a civilization, uh, and then went back into the sea, uh, and um, he's uh, in that way he's also kind of a of a Greek culture hero, or he's he's modeled on that idea uh, of a Greek um, founder or inventor of culture, what what was called uh, the protos horetes, the uh, inventor of uh, an art or a science. On page 236, you write as follows. For those who could read and write the signs the universe was made of, divine presence was imminent in the daily technical work of the scholar. It could be written in different forms. For Babylonians, it was the making of series, disciplined collections of what was known and what is possible, while for Judeans, it involved storytelling. The rules of the universe were retold as events in the lives of the fathers, but for those who came to share them, these techniques permitted them to engage in the daily work of a revelation that subsumed nature and culture together with the supernatural, their own written products with the foundational cosmic speech that shaped the world around them. Why did you choose to close and end your book with these specific words? Yeah, looking back on this, it's quite a mouthful, but I think I, it brings together, uh, I, I think, maybe two of the big take-homes here um, of the book. One is uh, th that when you compare Mesopotamian and Judean scribal culture, that is um, the Sumero-Akkadian cuneiform scholarship with uh, the Hebrew and Aramaic scholarship that uh, they're doing in, in Judea, uh, you, you find, I, I mean, I had two big illuminations. One was that in a certain way, they were radically different cultures. The um, Babylonian culture was a culture of continuity that they had, um, uh, that they produced tons of texts and they had thousands of years uh, of continuity where, where we, we know that scribes, Babylonian scribes in the Hellenistic period were able to and had to read and it had access to texts from over a thousand years earlier because they, there, there was a kind of unbroken tradition of scholarship going back at least to the old Babylonian period. So these guys could literally read uh, in the, for them the most ancient imaginable texts. So it's a culture of continuity and a culture uh, of scientific production in a lot of ways. They had a astronomical series called Enuma Anu Enlil that was 70 tablets, so, so tens of thousands of lines detailing astronomical events and observations. Uh, a very big culture, big and long lasting, the, the, um, you know, the, the main media form of several, uh, f for, the, for the time, gigantic empires. Um, and, and by contrast, you have this little place, uh, Judea, that has been conquered repeatedly. And it's not as much a culture of continuity, but a culture that thinks a lot about disruption. Uh, they, their media are fragile. Their uh, political entities are fragile. They, they, they've been devastated so often. And there are many images in the Bible of books being, or, or writings being destroyed. Uh, Moses shattering the 10 commandments, uh, Jeremiah's prophetic scroll being torn and burned by the king. Uh, so they're thinking a lot about text destruction. 
Um, at the same time, they share, uh, getting back to this viewpoint of historical ontology, the, the uh, Babylonian scholarship and at least uh, biblical priestly thought share what I call a uh, semiotic ontology. That is an idea that um, the universe was made of signs. And this is something that, we, that is actually described uh, in the Hodayot, those Qumran prayers. Uh, it's also described, of course, in Genesis 1. Um, there's this iconic quality, right? So God says, be light and be light and light was. So it's like God's words just move out of his mouth and into the narrator's writing and become reality. And that's, that's strikingly similar to um, the idea of uh, a God's self-enacting language or even Adapa's self-enacting language. Uh, so they share a kind of ideology and um, it, it's in this ideology, in this, this semiotic uh, ontology, uh, revelation uh, transcends both nature and culture. There isn't a separation between the two because it's all founded in divine language. Uh, and both Mesopotamian and Judean scribes uh, felt themselves able to produce divine language, share in the uh, share in the ontology, in the in a way the production of reality via creating uh, words, including new words that shaped reality. So that's that's the ideology that I I think. Um, it explains a lot of the deepest connections between the two. What is your book's contribution to the interpretation and exegesis of the biblical apocrypha and pseudepigrapha? So one of the big contributions, and this is something that I've um, also learned from um, scholars uh, like Michael Stone, uh, uh, Annette Reed, uh, Molly Zahn, uh, as well as um, my colleague and wife, uh, Ava Morocek, uh, who has a wonderful book called The Literary Imagination in Jewish Antiquity on this, is that um, Jewish apocrypha and pseudepigrapha, uh, many of those texts were not different from the Bible, from scripture and revelation, because um, there wasn't really a Bible yet. They didn't think about, uh, they, they had not developed a, a firm boundary between um, between the biblical and the post-biblical or non-biblical. That, um, that differentiation only, um, only came later. It's really a product of late antiquity. What that means is uh, that <coughs> Enoch was treated as scripture. Uh, that in some ways this was um, considered the same kind of revelation as Exodus or Deuteronomy or the prophecies of Isaiah, and that that uh, they enacted it. And that I, I think I've I found one way to look at how the stuff was enacted and lived out, could be participated in on the one hand um, by adopting this kind of um, Enoch-like persona. Um, but also how they thought they could produce new revelations like this. In other words, I, I think this helps give us a lot of insight into the writers of both biblical texts and early Jewish literature, how they thought they were empowered uh, to produce uh, written revelation.
In what ways does your book advance our understanding of neo-Assyrian literature? Well, and I think in addition to detailing the importance of Adapa in this concrete way that, that I really hadn't been done uh, since Piccioni and that I, I uh, think I feel like I illuminated his life in the minds of both kings and scribes in a new way. The other thing that surprised me that no one had done since people had been worrying about it for well over a century is I listed all of the certain and likely examples of uh, Mesopotamian texts and culture being transferred into Hebrew or Aramaic or other West Semitic. And I uh, specifically, the, this is become, this really heats up in the Neo-Assyrian period uh, when you can see a process of translation, a very regular process of translation, both between West and East Semitic. Uh, so the, um, the earliest extended Aramaic text that we have, the Tel Fechariah inscription, is a guy who claims to be in Aramaic, he claims to be a king in Babylonian, he only claims to be a governor, but it's a bilingual. Uh, and it's pretty clear that by this point, the local kingdoms and royal courts had people in their chancery, in their scribal apparatus, who regularly translated back and forth. Uh, and we see this not just on royal inscriptions, but also on legal texts. There are a number of um, uh, Neo-Assyrian legal texts that have Aramaic uh, labels or dockets on them. Uh, we see uh, little Aramaic legal notes and even, even one letter uh, in Aramaic that's pretty clearly shows signs of calcing from Neo-Assyrian. That is that the people are, are uh, used to writing and communicating in Neo-Assyrian. They have Neo-Assyrian names, but they're they're writing here in Aramaic. It's called the, the Ashur Ostrakhan. Uh, and this, for the first time, concretely demonstrates the ways that people went back and forth between uh, West Semitic and East Semitic, specifically in this period between Neo-Assyrian uh, and Aramaic, uh, as well as in the two quite strong examples from the Bible and the Covenant Code of Exodus, which shows uh, a lot of Mesopotamian legal discourse, uh, as well as the, the curses uh, at the end of Deuteronomy. A and I think that they show not, especially in, in the biblical ones, they show not that the scribes who uh, created that part of Exodus and, and, and the, the, the curses of Deuteronomy, not that they were necessarily sitting there with cuneiform tablets in front of them, but they had been shaped by and remembered um, both Mesopotamian legal formulae as well as uh, terrifying curse and treaty oath ceremonies that they had, they or their um, predecessors had been forced to witness or participate in, since we know the, the Neo-Assyrian Empire made many of its vassals take these kinds of frightening ritualized oaths where they had to recite the curses that would come down upon them. So I think it lets us get a lot more concrete about a subject that people have been um, interested in, worried about, or even obsessed with um, for well over 100 years, starting, of course, 
with the very first major discovery of, of Babylonian literature, namely uh, the flood tablet, which was the first, uh, the first really, really deciphered piece of uh, ancient Mesopotamian literature. It was a Neo-Assyrian uh, copy of Tablet 11 uh, of the Epic of Gilgamesh that contains the flood. And it absolutely freaked people out because they started wondering and worrying whether Mesopotamian literature, including the flood, might have been older than and um, determinative of uh, shaping influence on uh, the Bible, specifically Genesis. So this, um, and I, I think since then, there's been this kind of anxiety of influence. People have worried, oh, did they just steal it from Babylonians? Is uh, some aspect of ancient Hebrew culture a copy or even an inferior copy of Babylonian culture? Uh, people have been very defensive about this. I think this lets us document what's much more of a kind of a creative sharing and reshaping uh, and that we can see in, in, in very specific, even pedestrian, uh, ordinary ways. You write as follows on page 227. In a way, the story of Adapa and Enoch is the story of first millennium scribal culture. We are coming to recognize that the path to the heart of ancient sacred literatures, both the Hebrew Bible and the more abundant archives of Mesopotamia, runs through the scribes who created them. So far, scholars have most often studied them from the viewpoint of education, teaching people to master a fixed pre-existing culture. Masters taught students to read and write by precisely reproducing the revered texts of the past, indoctrinating them into the precise values of the past. By making copies of older texts, they made themselves into copies of older people. Scholars have also studied them as borrowers, absorbing texts or phrases from one culture to rearrange and apply in another. But scribes were more than just conduits for words. The current picture can make the hearts of ancient scholars seem bloodless and leaves open the question of where their literatures came from. In fact, scribal cultures changed creatively, sometimes radically. Whole new literatures arose in Neo-Assyrian, in Aramaic and in Hebrew, of which the Bible is merely the most familiar. Scribes did not just copy, but rewrote revelations and created new ones. Who did they think they were actively? Who, who, who did they think they were to actively participate in the words of the gods? How did they think they could know new things? This book shows how ancient scribal heroes provide a crucial missing dimension in our view of these scribal cultures. Ideal mythic figures like Adapa and Enoch helped define scribes' aspirations and self-images by investigating whose eyes they saw the world and its secrets through what voices they spoke with in liturgy and what they could become in ritual, we gain a view of ancient scholarly subjectivity and agency that we cannot get from looking at their vocational training, editorial techniques, or literary works alone. By imitating master teachers or texts, emulating supernatural sages, help give scribes access to new creative power. Can you elaborate on this passage for us? 
Yeah, I, I think the the take home there it, it, for me, the most important one is that the I think the book helps us gain a view of ancient scribal um, and scholarly subjectivity and agency that we can't get from just looking at their education um, or texts. In other words, who did they think they were and what empowered them to do the sometimes radical things that they did uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls to say, to claim to be enthroned in heaven or to claim to know how the angels pray on Shabbat in heaven uh, in Mesopotamia to say, I am Adapa, sage of the abyss. Uh, these are big claims, and not only that, but as um, Qumran scholars from uh, Emmanuel Tov and Eugene Ulrich to, to my, uh, actually my first Hebrew teacher in college, Sidney White Crawford, have uh, illuminated there, uh, at the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were still biblical texts being rewritten, uh, being very creatively transformed and developed. The words of God, you know, if, if you have a specific passage in Deuteronomy or Exodus uh, that's supposed to be a quote from God, so presumably something that you would not want to alter since a God said it one way and not another way, uh, and, and you presumably can't just chop that up, riff on it, you know, turn it upside down. Um, the people in the you know third third century BC second century BC actually did feel free to change that stuff to rearrange it uh, according to what they thought God really meant or another way it could be said better or the idea that it must really be much more harmonious than it is in our sometimes conflicting and contradictory biblical statements how did they feel themselves able to uh, remix, rewrite, uh, and constantly alter the words of God. This is something that, um, for example, the end of Michael Fishbane's uh, fascinating um, biblical interpretation in ancient Israel, he kind of hints at this. He's like, well, you know, these guys uh, are constantly reinterpreting the Bible pretty aggressively inside the Bible. That turns out to be a little anachronistic when he says inner biblical interpretation in ancient Israel. Uh, technically, that's false. There wasn't a Bible in ancient Israel. Uh, but his point that they are altering things that they were treating as revelation uh, and making new revelation is certainly true. And, and I think this gives us a little bit of a better picture of how they thought they could do it and why they did it. What does your book teach us about epistemology? What can the insights that you provide about Enoch's knowledge teach those who are outside the purview of Judaic learning and study? How can Enoch's knowledge be communicable and comprehensible to those in other fields of study and to those with backgrounds outside of Jewish traditional literature? I, I think getting a deeper historical perspective on what knowledge was and how knowledge was thought to arrive in ancient cultures is pretty valuable. For example, for the history of science, uh, an amazing kind of epistemological uh, concept that we see in Mesopotamia is, first of all, so it, it's widely acknowledged that Mesopotamia has the first real empirical science. Uh, 
uh, people used to attribute uh, the first real scientific knowledge to the Greeks, uh, the Greek miracle in philosophy and math and geometry, etc. And there are amazing achievements. There's amazing ideas and forms of discourse as well as the geometry and things in Greek. But the, the Greeks were pretty allergic to empirical knowledge often. Uh, Aristotle says that real knowledge comes from proceeding from good first principles and, and proofs and empirical demonstrations and observations are merely uh, a, a for show way of making something persuasive. By contrast, Mesopotamian astronomers documented the uh, times of the rising and setting and visibility of the heavenly bodies uh, in detail and over hundreds of years. And as um, Noel Swerdlow, the great historian uh, of science and astronomy, uh, formerly the, the, he was he was at the U of Chicago, wrote in his book on uh, Babylonian planetary theory, Mesopotamian astronomers for the purposes of what we'd call astrology, so for what we'd consider to be totally irrational reasons, um, were able to create a huge database, abstract it into formulae, and successfully predict the positions of, of the heavenly bodies, as well as eclipses, uh, based on uh, hundreds of years of empirical observation. And yet, this epistemology uh, was connected with notions of divine revelation. Uh, they claimed to know things not merely through observing, speculating, calculating, but through direct divine revelation, uh, including revelation handed down by Adapa. And similarly, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, um, the Enochic book of the Luminaries, it's, which is a, somewhat earlier from the, than the Qumran collection, but is found there in Aramaic, translates a, a good bit of this Babylonian astronomy, again, in the form of revelation. And there's a, an Aramaic phrase um, that translates as something like, I was caused to see uh, another calculation. Enoch says this repeatedly, he's caused to see or to know uh, and he's caused to know by the angel Uriel. So his whole epistemology uh, is one based on revelation, and yet the result is science. So I think this, um, this is kind of an interesting challenge for the history of epistemology and uh, what you could call the history of science or the history of knowledge, that uh, people who, who were doing empirical observation and uh, advanced math nevertheless had a very different theory of knowledge, the way they thought, or at least the way they claimed to come to know astronomy and math uh, that we'd consider to be empirical and predictive uh, was often by divine revelation. So I, I think that's a really interesting result. You write as follows on page 196, sorry, on page one, on, you write as follows on page 229. The connection between Mesopotamian and Judaic learning was widespread and pedestrian rather than esoteric. It lay in a shared set of assumptions about a shared high culture. And when asked what tied the stars and ancient knowledge of the world together, transmitted in the text they curated, scribes knew that one of their own had revealed for Mesopotamians, he was a semi-divine being 
who began civilization, civilization after the flood, whose presence was immediately accessible in ritual, and whose texts had been transmitted verbatim, scribe to scribe, in a continuous tradition by the guild that could still adopt his voice. For Judeans, he was their ancestor whose works had survived a hidden catastrophe, someone whose knowledge and voice could be emulated indirectly after tremendous discipline and personal transformation. The relationship between Babylonian and Judean written cultures has been a subject of curiosity and uncertainty since the decipherment of cuneiform, but some of the problem has been in seeing it as a literary relationship between texts rather than a historical relationship between peoples and cultures, tracing each scribal hero's path in his own culture to where they met in a shared one lets us move beyond generalization to grasp what these cultures meant to the scribes themselves. Can you explain what you are referring to in this passage? Yeah, so I, I think the, the um, when I say the relationship between Babylonian and, Jude and Judean written culture has been a subject of curiosity since the decipherment of cuneiform, <clears throat> one measure of just how interested people are still in 2023 is that... Um, there's a uh, there's a terrific uh, YouTube series by a guy named Derek Lambert called Myth Vision that explores a lot of Bible and ancient Near East topics uh, from a you know very very popular point of view. They're very colorful, splashy videos, and his most popular video with one million views is "Where Did Enoch Come From?" Uh, more popular than stuff about the Gospels. The prophets, Old Testament, New Testament. So people are really curious about Enoch. And um, he, he was able to, to draw on some of my work too. But the, the, point is that, the point is that the connection between these two cultures, the Mesopotamian background of a lot of this early Jewish, uh, early Jewish figures, early Jewish math and astronomy, when I say it was pedestrian rather than esoteric, what I mean is that these folks... Um, shared a very obvious and normal everyday and even bureaucratic uh, medium that is writing and learning Aramaic uh, mostly on parchment uh, because after the fall of the kingdom of Judah uh, all of uh, learning in the learning of ancient Israel the Hebrew learning uh, had to be transferred to an Aramaic based medium. And you can even see this in the script. They stop writing Hebrew script, even Hebrew texts, when we find them again, are written in an Aramaic script style. Because if these guys wanted to have a job, uh, they needed to be able to write Aramaic. Hebrew was optional because all of the officials, all of the documents, deeds, titles, uh, le legal material to be valid had to be in Aramaic. Nobody was going to pay you to write uh, a will or the deed to a house in Hebrew. So um, as a result, Aramaic written culture uh, was became pretty much universal uh, across the Near East by the late Persian period and early Hellenistic period. And so anyone who is educated to be a scribe, uh, I mean, outside, you know, in Egypt, they're still using a lot of, um, you know, demotic and other things. But, uh, but also in Egypt, they use Aramaic. Everywhere else in the ancient Near East, 
there was a shared written culture of Aramaic. And if you wanted to get um, advanced, if you were kind of going for your scribal graduate degree uh, to be able to maybe work in a, a, a chancery or a palace or be an official, you probably had to study some advanced topics like astronomy and math uh, and you probably were familiar with the fact that Adapa, some heaven re heavenly revealer, had brought this knowledge down to you. And so it was natural to see uh, knowledge of the universe as coming from a heavenly revealer. And Enoch fit that bill uh, for Judeans. What new insights does your research provide regarding the book of Ezekiel? In particular, how can the themes that you present in your book with respect to inner biblical exegesis shed new light on the book of Ezekiel in relation to Enoch and Adapa? How does your study enable us to read and reinterpret the Bible and biblical literature in new ways? And can you describe the book of Ezekiel in this context? Yeah. I think that Ezekiel is most influential in uh, Jewish liturgy and mysticism for the opening chapters where we see God's chariot throne, which is then later described as the Merkavah. And even this even becomes one of the names for early Jewish mystical literature, the literature uh, of the throne, the, the, the divine throne with the living creatures, these uh, famous creature hybrid creatures uh who who have um, four monstrous faces and float above these these wheels and even god himself appears in this luminous coruscating splendor above the chariot but ezekiel is also a work uh, an epistemological work and that's what i wanted to emphasize that um that you can place the concept of religious experience much more firmly in history as one way that scholars talked about what they were doing and what empowered them to create knowledge, including the revelations in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, so for Ezekiel, it's not raw experience or revelation, despite the high voltage, uh, mystical looking vision he has at the beginning. Um, a lot of the knowledge in Ezekiel is in fact, uh, quantitative. For Ezekiel, the word of God is no longer enough because clearly God has appeared to Moses, to other prophets, and the people still didn't listen. Ezekiel is full of anger about uh, the people's disobedience. Uh, the, 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 even though the word of God was handed down through the prophets, people didn't listen. So Ezekiel is trying a new mode of knowledge and communication. And here we see, here's what I, what I was talking about when I talked about a historical ontology that I think Ezekiel is a great example. Uh, it's in response to these, in the exile, these kinds of media problems uh, of mediating or, or uh, transmitting prophecy in an effective way that will actually hit home to people uh, that Ezekiel argues that people need to in, 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 not just hear the words of revelation, but understand the physical shape of God's temple that through not only uh, hearing a description, but actually seeing the measurements and the shape through this kind of exact knowledge, uh, this will transform them in a way 
this experience, this very precise quantitative experience and knowledge uh, of, of the new temple. It's, I mean, it's, it's a heavenly model, but it's going to appear, Ezekiel claims, in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and this will be more transformative. So um, every one of Ezekiel's visions begins by with the phrase, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And everyone is described as transforming him, altering his mind or his body, moving him somewhere, showing him something new. So on the one hand, Ezekiel is described as having these transformative encounters that we would call religious experience. But on the other hand, the a lot of the content of the revelation is precise knowledge, is quantitative. His temple vision in particular shows an epistemology that resembles uh, the astronomy of Enoch that I discussed, as well as the temple scroll uh, of the Dead Sea Scrolls with its exact measurements and stipulations. Uh, to see is to understand the precise measurements uh, of heavenly structures and even predictive formulae. So uh, this is what I would call not, not religious experience, but uh, a kind of precise transformative knowledge, what you could call apocalyptic science, since uh, this sorts of exact heavenly architecture that's being transmitted in Ezekiel, and then the uh, revelatory knowledge of the universe in, in, in the, the cosmic tour, uh, which Uriel gives Enoch, has uh, also been thought of as the first apocalypse, at least the earliest datable uh, piece of literature that is connected um, with apocalyptic literature. On page 232, you write as follows. Seeing history from the viewpoint of how culture was made and shared helps clarify this major set of changes. While we typically periodize political history by its ruling emperor, empires into Babylonian, Persian, and Hellenistic periods, it is equally helpful here to periodize cultural history by its dominant media forms. In this case, it would not be inaccurate to call the shared written world of Judea and Babylonian had entered by the early 5th century the quote-unquote parchment period by this point, what they had in common was that their traditional modes of written knowledge were becoming not only archaic, but exotic. Hebrew and Babylonian were both marked as old local traditions in an environment where written Aramaic was more and more the norm. For the first time, both cultures shared the single common medium of parchment. Along with the dominant media, by the second half of the first millennium, the stakes of Mesopotamian scribal knowledge had changed, and with them, Adipa's biography. Scribes' ongoing revision of their tradition was accelerated by the loss of native kingship and the rise of the Persian Empire's more Aramaic norms. By embracing a, larger, a world larger than cuneiform, this new multimedia scribal culture flowered by the Seleucid period. The Resh Temple of Uruk, a new structure on a scale never before seen in Babylonia, was attributed to Adapa himself, who held a prominent role in the New Year's Akitu festival for the temple and in a contemporary king list also found there. Their knowledge of cosmic order circulated on parchment as well as clay. 
After native kingship, scribes' thought shifted its center from royal power to the cosmos itself. The result was a Babylonian-based standard medium of knowledge and training, Aramaic on parchment, that could communicate universal law and aspire to be universal itself. Can you say more about this for us? Yeah, so the the key point here, I think, is that this is not just a history of uh, literature or a history of religious visions, but what's happening here is a media history. In other words, it's something that we can uh, only fully understand if we look at what they were using physically to communicate. This is true in Mesopotamia because of the great durability of clay, which makes their culture uh, much more of a, a literary culture of continuity than um, the culture of the Southern Levant. Uh, one amazing example is that uh, when um, Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who destroys Jerusalem and ends the kingdom of Judah, when he's uh, marching in, in, through Lebanon uh, down, in, including eventually when he, his conquest um, of the Southern Levant, but uh, earlier before that, he puts up these monumental inscriptions in the Wadi Brisa, uh, which include, by the way, Apkalo, these, these uh, heavenly beings, these, these uh, super sages, but also include uh, his royal inscription written on one side in Hammurabi script, that is a script from 1800 BCE, and then on the other side, uh, a, a Neo-Babylonian script, that is one that's appropriate to 600 BCE. So. Uh, over a thousand years is, is physically spanned by cuneiform tradition. Um, meanwhile, the media of ancient Israel of the late Iron Age of uh, the Hebrew that's probably mostly written on papyrus is lost. And uh, there's this great disruption, but also this great creativity when the main written medium uh, of Judea becomes Aramaic on parchment. And it's this uh, disruption and this new creative form that lets Judean scholars and scribes share in this new universe of knowledge, where they are on the one hand transmitting these ancient Hebrew traditions, and then on the, the other hand, participating in a, a larger world of written tradition and culture, which they now share with uh, Mesopotamian scholars, such that the originally Mesopotamian knowledge of astronomy, even traditions about heavenly revealers, is no longer seen as foreign knowledge, as the language of the empire, of the colonizer, of the uh, the kingdom that that, that massacred and, and, and raped and, and uh, looted. Um, Judah, but instead it's seen as universal cosmic knowledge, as, uh, as, as shared writing, shared scholarship, maybe even just knowledge itself. So I think that um, that change in media helps explain a lot about the changes in religion, uh, culture, and scripture that uh, really create early Judaism. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Yes, yeah, so I'm uh, I'm working on 
a much more, in a way, much more standard <laughs> project now, which is um, a, a study of the literary values that led to the composition of the Pentateuch. That is, why does the Torah read so weirdly? Why, why is the world created twice? Uh, at the beginning in, in Genesis, why um, why does did all of the major events of the Exodus happen at least twice? Um, and what and not merely can we find layers or sources because yes we can. It's uh, it's the only plausible explanation that that most of the Pentateuch was built from variant versions of the story of, of ancient Israel that were floating around in Hebrew culture. So not just that, but um, what are, why was this deliberately done? Why, what were the positive values? What was the literary vision uh, that led to these um, parallel, conflicting, and sometimes even contradictory intertwined versions? Um, and I actually use a metaphor from music uh, at, at one point, um, uh, because uh, the great Hebrew University scholar Yisrael Knoll described um, the, the Bible as the divine symphony, but with all of the kinds of contradictions and um, awkward, incomplete parallels, it, it, it's a very uh, discordant, atonal symphony if it's designed to be a symphony. So instead, I, um, I use a term uh, from music theory that describes a lot of a value that appears in a lot of music across the world, uh, including in Jewish liturgy, which is heterophony. That is, when you have parallel voices that are not in a rigid harmonic relationship, such that each each voice is a set number of intervals or semitones away from each other, producing a nice harmony or choir type sound, but rather that they're they're following parallel melodic lines, but doing each one a little differently or or a lot differently stopping coming back in varying the line and this is actually a positive creative value uh another way i i, I describe it in um the the heterophony thing I, appears in a uh a seriology journal uh nabu where i use it to describe a, a value that also appears in babylonian scholarship and i also have an, a, a a book the in, in the works uh, about the broad literary values that generated the Torah. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for all the erudition and eloquence uh, that accompanied your answers throughout the course of our dialogue together. Well, thank you so much for your really careful and thoughtful reading and uh, your just kind and interesting questions. So yeah, it's been, it's been great. Thanks a lot, Ari. My pleasure. As we end our dialogue today, I am your host on the New Books and Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. I have been in dialogue today with Seth Sanders. He is professor in the Religious Studies Department and in the Jewish Studies Program at University of California, Davis. We have been discussing his recently published book, From Adapa to Enoch, Scribal Culture and Religious Vision in Judea and Babylon, published in Tübingen, Germany, by Moore Seebeck Publishers, 2017. Thank you.